You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.15, Bits and Pieces, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and uh, if you were hoping that Gundam would get good again after last week's deeply disappointing episode, could you hope a little harder, please? And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and it's rare that I really dislike an episode, but I really don't like this episode. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 411 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Victor J.M., Scott B., Eve G., and Jasmine. This podcast would not be possible without your support. Help keep us ad-free by becoming a patron today at GundamPodcast.com Patreon. A subscriber at Subscribestar.com GundamPodcast or making a one-time payment on our Ko-fi page, ko-fi.com slash Gundam Podcast. Before we get started this week, we have a content warning for you about this episode. We are going to be discussing episode 17 of Gundam Double Zeta, Retrieve the Core Top, or Dakai Koa Topu. This is the second of a run of four episodes, all scripted by writer Endo Akinori, and it is somehow even worse than last podcast, Melee Aboard the Argama. The episode this week contains a number of scenes that may be deeply upsetting, including repeated instances of strangulation, one of which depicts a character strangling one of his female friends, as well as a scene depicting an adult woman sexually assaulting a teenage boy. The recap and talkback portions of this podcast do engage extensively with those scenes. If you would like to skip those discussions while listening to the rest of the podcast, I recommend that you listen to the Radio Free Shangri-La skit, and then skip directly to Nina's research about the comparatively safe subject of maglev trains. Nina's research begins at the 42-minute mark. With that said, let's tune our radios to Radio Free Shangri-La. Out in deepest space, far from the light of familiar stars, the dashing hero of science, Strobe Flanagan, struggles to rescue himself, his first officer, the lovely and dangerous Vale Meadows, and their new companion, the space squire Zabibi, from the heart of an enemy battle cruiser that they call the Minoan Bull. Get that door closed! No! Stop those interludes! Captain! I'm all right, Lieutenant. I just got clipped by a stray energy bullet. Uh, the inside of this Minoan bull is like a labyrinth. We'd never have found our way to the hangar without Zabibi leading the way. Zabibi! And thank heavens that you had these uh, atomizing, disintegrating ray guns. Don't thank the heavens, Vale. Thank science. For without science, I could never have invented them. But there's just one thing I don't understand about them, Captain. How do they work? Why, it's simple, Vale. You know how Minovsky particles work. Of course, sir. Every child knows that. Well, you simply compress an eye-field lattice until it resembles an exp- But it's very important that you don't overwork it or it will come out all stodgy. It sounds so simple. And it is. I'm more worried about how we're going to get off this ship now that the tomorrow is gone. Oh, Zabibi! Zabibi! Not now, Space Squire. I'm trying to innovate my way out of this predicament we found ourselves in. Perhaps I could design and manufacture- Zabibi! What is it, little guy? You know a way we can get off this enemy ship? Zabibi! You have your own ship that fits exactly three people? Zabibi! 
and it's just a few dozen meters away in this very hangar, lightly guarded by a handful of Admiral Evil's youngest and weakest soldiers? Zabibi! Oh, they're not all soldiers. Some of them are just teenage space interns. Hmm, I don't feel entirely comfortable about this, but we do need to escape somehow. Now, how are we going to convince the captain that it was his idea? Hurry up, Vale! We have to finish dispatching these unusually small and weak guards and seize this spaceship so that we can properly demonstrate to the venture capitalists of this dimension the many ways in which my new interstellar propulsion drive is superior to their existing designs. Look out behind you, sir! Ha <laughs> Take that, youthful miscreant! Ow! You hit me! What the Brendan Brendanson! You actually punched him! That is not acting. I'm so I'm sorry. I, I don't know what came over me. It just all seemed so real for a moment. Hacks and philistines, every one of you. You don't deserve my zabibi. Uh, we'll be right back. Uh, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors, Man Guy Toys and Hobbies. Seriously, I can't work under these conditions. And now the recap for Retrieve the Core Top. Repairs completed, the Argama leaves the Lavian Rose behind. Medcha and Millie, in addition to bringing new parts and weapons, come bearing the Argama's latest orders to attack Axis directly. Bright is outraged that they are expected to attack by themselves, but Medcha, full of bluster, insists that between the Argama's new guns, their three newly upgraded mobile suits, and their new type pilot, it should be no trouble at all. Judo is listening to all this when someone calls out to him. Millie glides over to express her sympathy over the capture of his sister. She points out what a difficult situation he's in, as any attack on the Mindra or on Axis puts his sister at risk, a point that somehow hadn't occurred to Judo. He becomes enraged, shaking Millie, grabbing her by the neck, and yelling about how he won't let that happen to Lena, until Bright lays a hand on his arm, telling him to calm down. Judo's friends rally around him and reassure him that they will all work together to save his sister, leaving Judo fired up and ready to fight as part of the Gundam team. In the Argama's path lies the ruin of a long-abandoned colony, and inside it hide Goten and his squad, setting up a trap for the Ayug ship. The Argama's bridge crew spot the wreck from afar, and Medcha excitedly proposes they use it as a test target for the new Mega Particle Cannon. Bright agrees, and preparations begin to reroute power to the new gun. Across the ship, Kiara finds Judo alone in the bathroom and corners him, trapping him against a wall and shoving herself up against him. Judo, obviously uncomfortable, tells her to cut it out, but she stays where she is and makes him an offer. If he will help her escape to Axis, she will free his sister. After a few minutes, Shinta and Kum get suspicious of how long Kiara has been in the bathroom and burst in, yelling, Don't listen to her! They grab hold of Kiara's legs, trying to knock her down, while Kiara, fed up with trying to convince Judo, attacks him instead, wrapping a nearby rope around his neck. Unfrozen, Judo headbutts Kiara and she lets him go, but she hasn't given up on her escape plan. She grabs Shinta and makes a break for the hangar. When word reaches the bridge that Kiara is trying to escape, the firing test is postponed. Kiara manages to get into the core top, one of the three core fighters that make up the double Zeta, and she takes Shinta along as a hostage. Scrambling to the Mark II, Elle gets in just in time. Kiara blasts her way out of the hangar, and Elle is able to catch everyone else in the hangar before they are sucked out into space. In the other two core fighters, Judo and Ino take off after Kiara. When Goten's men see the three core fighters approaching, they think they've been spotted, and begin their own attack. While Shinta fights Kiara for control of the core top, L in the Mark II and Ru in the Zeta launch to fight off the Axis mobile suits. Flanking the core top, Judo and Ino initiate the Double Zeta's docking and transformation sequence, and the appearance of the fully formed Double Zeta sends the Axis mobile suits running. 
Attacking as they retreat, Judo hits and destroys a dummy asteroid to reveal a dark cubelet. The pilot, a young girl with glowing eyes and a blank expression, attacks the three Argama mobile suits with the cubelet's bits, and Judo and company are no match for this new type. To help his pilots, Bright warns them to get out of the way and orders that the new mega particle beam cannon be fired. All of the mobile suits, the dark cubelet included, manage to get out of the way in time, but the distant colony ruins are completely obliterated, and the destructive power of the Argama's new weapon leaves Judo, El, and Ru all stunned. Horrified all over again at what might happen to Lena, Judo finally snaps and takes off alone to rescue her, promising to come back once he's succeeded. His friends and crewmates call after him, but he and his core fighter disappear into the distance. At this point, I feel like I've seen enough of Double Zeta to start to form an opinion about the series as a whole and to compare it to other series that we've watched so far. And after this episode, where I'm landing is that while the uh, highs of Double Zeta are higher for me than they were in Zeta, the lows are also much lower. Mm. And this episode really has some very high highs and some very low lows, doesn't it? I don't know about very high highs, <laughs> but it has some great, clever moments that I almost think of as characteristic of Double Zeta mm -hmm. because of the humor to them. Mm -hmm. uh, but it also has some really awful moments. That I also think of as characteristic of Double Zeta because of the specific nature of their awfulness. Yeah, this was an episode that had several scenes that made me deeply uncomfortable and upset. Uh, and because... I watched it a couple hours ago and have had time to talk through it a bit with Tom and to think about it. I'm going to be a bit more sort of impassive now, but uh, don't think that means I don't feel it very deeply because my <laughs> reaction when I first saw it was very strong. My reaction was also very strong. Um, yeah, it's a little bit like the episode we talked about in the prior uh, podcast. Some stuff that happens early on in this episode really just spoils the entire rest of the episode. And it's impossible for me to look at the later scenes um, sort of standing on their own and to objectively say this is a good or a bad scene because I'm so powerfully soured on the episode right off the get-go that I just, nothing after that was going to work for me. Have you guessed what we're talking about yet? The scene we are talking about is the second scene in the episode where Judo strangles Millie uh, for about four seconds before anyone does anything. The reason this has such a, a strong impact on me uh, is because of a, a bit of information which some of you may not be aware of, but that uh, at least in the United States, and there might be cultural differences, I don't know, but uh, strangulation in intimate partner violence or in domestic violence is a very strong predictor for homicide. A person who strangles their partner is much more likely to kill that partner later, like seven and a half times more likely. It's very serious and scary. And in the episode, it is, I think, meant to be funny? On watching it again, I'm not sure if it was meant to be funny exactly, but it's clearly not serious. Right, it's treated with uh, levity, which in this case maybe doesn't mean that it's meant to be a joke, but it doesn't have any impact, right? Uh, it's immediately forgotten as soon as it happens. This scene, I think in both of our opinions, is so abominably bad that we really need to take it apart and analyze it quite minutely. Part of what really gets me about it is that the violence is so impersonal. And by that, I mean, it doesn't actually have anything to do with Millie. Millie has just come up to Judo to offer her sympathies for the situation his sister is in, to express how awful it is, to bring up a point that nobody has <laughs> made yet or seems to realize. But when they attack the Mindra or attack Axis, they risk hurting or even killing Lena unless they rescue Lena first, you know, this being highly important information for Judo and 
when he grabs and shakes Millie or then strangles her, he's not actually mad at Millie. He's like, no, I won't let that happen to my sister. Like, he's just mad and Millie is just in front of him. He goes berserk, basically. And when Bright tells him to stop, immediately everybody starts comforting Judo. It's all about Judo's feelings. Not Millie, the person who is currently holding her throat. Trying to catch her breath. It's all, oh, don't worry, Judo, we will band together and we'll save Lena, and Millie's almost forgotten. And then the writers have the gall to, after all of this has happened, when Judo is like, yeah, I'm really fired up to do this, Millie comes up and says how admirable she thinks he is. Yeah, having that happen just strips any potential impact that this event might have had, and it it's terrible writing. And not only does Millie immediately come back from being strangled to say, not 30 seconds later, Judo, you're so magnificent. I feel so inspired by you. Wow. Uh, we're also invited to laugh at her because she's got the, the welding torch or the soldering gun or whatever it is sparking as she comes towards him. And we're all supposed to go, ha ha, look at this flibberty gibbet. She doesn't realize that her soldering gun is on. Like in every way, Millie is being... Uh, treated like a throwaway joke in this scene. And I want to focus for a second on that part of the scene where everyone is comforting Judo. Because when Bright stops him from strangling Millie, what Bright says is, uh, Ochitsuke, like... Calm down. Compose yourself. It's all about Judo. Even when Bright is telling him to knock it off. And then El and Eno, who are both, like, sensible, feet-on-the-ground people who, especially Eno, really, like have established themselves as having kind of a moral compass and a role as uh, Judo's conscience in the show, but neither of them has anything to say about this attack that just took place. All they want to talk about is uh, how Judo should feel better. But also the way it's framed. When Eno enters the picture, he steps in front of Millie, who at this moment is still like clutching her throat and panting and struggling to breathe. And then we get a, a camera change to a position where Judo is blocking Millie out. Just like the whole construction of this scene uh, makes her disappear as soon as everyone starts focusing on Judo's hurt feelings. In a terrible way, it seems as though a lot of the scenes that Millie's in and the way she's written, uh, the way she's been characterized previously and the way she continues to be characterized in this episode is again about how like game she is, I guess, is my best way of saying it. We talked in previous episodes about how she's cast as being very brave, mm -hmm. right? She takes a lot of very brave actions. She's much braver than Macha. You know, here, she takes this violence apparently in stride uh, and does not appear to hold it against Judo. Ick, gross. Uh, and then we get treated later on to a scene of her as a gunner, and she's pretty good at it. And her mm -hmm. almost, you know, bloodthirsty to take out these uh, Axis mobile suits. Though female character takes a gun turret and performs better than the men who are on the gun turrets at the same time, like might as well be on the bingo card for Gundam female characterization. Because Sayla did that, Elle did that, now Millie is doing that. Very true. It's one way to show that like, this is a, this is a tough girl. Not like those other girls. This is a fighter. We are then treated to another assault uh, in which uh, Kiara effectively pins Judo to a wall. She's doing a kabedon, for those of you familiar with the term kabedon. It's when he's sort of like trapped between her body and her arms and the wall. We talked about it in one of the early episodes of season two, so you can go back and check that out. Uh, and then proceeds to push her breasts in his face and rub up against him even when he tells her to stop and to back off and despite his obvious discomfort. And she's clearly doing it as part of her overall strategy to convince him to do what she wants. This is very clearly weaponized sexuality meant to coerce a man into doing her bidding. I've been thinking a lot about times that she's done this previously or things like this to Mashima and to Goten. And it wasn't really okay at those times, and I'm sorry if I laughed it off, but this time feels much worse. Yeah, I mean, in the past, I do think it was different. In prior scenes when she was 
uh, making Mashima uncomfortable, for instance, she wasn't doing anything to him. She was just being a strong, uh, assertive, sexual woman around him. There is a scene where she gets right up to touching him, where she's like pushing her chest against his chest. It's the one before he makes the joke about just because she has giant mounds. <laughs> and I believe she does touch Gotten. There's one moment with Gotten where she like gets really excited and she goes, Yahoo! And, and like grabs his face. And grabs his face and like hugs him to her chest briefly. Yeah. I mean, the main differences are that Judo is a child <laughs> and they are adults. And perhaps I'm reading too much into them, but in those previous scenes, there is less of a power imbalance between her and these other men. There's less of a sense of they're trapped and they can't do anything about her. Whereas in the scene with Judo, it feels very much like he has no idea what to do. He's so uncomfortable. He's trapped alone with this woman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the characterization of the action as violence is pretty clear here. It's a little ambiguous how we're supposed to take it, whether this is supposed to be something that we find amusing or horrifying, but it is clearly being depicted as an assault. Whereas I don't think those prior interactions were given that same characterization by the show. Yeah, I mean, as as we discussed when those scenes came up, uh, there was a sense in those scenes that this was a way for a woman to try to have power in the workplace. Yeah, especially because at that point, Kiara's role had not yet been elevated to like, in the scene Captain of the ship, yeah. yeah. You know, she was characterized as a reporter. Her power in that scenario came entirely from her own, like, sense of self and assertiveness. In this scene, she is larger than him. She is stronger than him. She has got him cornered. And a big part of it, I think, is that she has him alone. Once Shinta and Kum come in, it's sort of as if he unfreezes. And then we get another choking. Kiara grabs the rope that ties her and Shinta together and wraps it around Judo's neck until he headbutts her to get free. It's the second of a total of four scenes of asphyxiation that happen throughout this episode. Three of which involve choking. Yes, three of which explicitly involve uh, choking someone's neck using uh, arms, rope, or legs. And then one of which involves uh, Gotten almost being asphyxiated by the vacuum of space. And in that scene, while it is like conceptually different in some important ways, he does talk about it as I'm choking, I'm suffocating in here. It's hard not to connect it to this recurring theme throughout the episode of choking and of suffocating. Yeah, we have that scene, <laughs> the whole group of Axis pilots in uh, Gotten's mobile suit who say, you know, oh, you should let us out. God says, sure, fine. Opens the cockpit unthinking when everybody still has their own uh, visors open and everybody starts to suffocate and rushes to close their visors. We also have the scene of Shinta using what is called a triangle choke on Kiara. Uh, a triangle choke is when you use uh, basically your thighs, like you wrap your legs around someone's neck, uh, can be very effective when executed properly, even by somebody small, like Shinta against Kiara. And this is a bit of a, a deep cut callback, but we actually saw Shinta and Kum practicing some real wrestling grappling moves back in Zeta. So this is not actually coming out of nowhere. Shinta knows jujitsu. You know, I think that scene of Gotten with the whole crew of pilots all crammed into the one cockpit I think that one might be funny, but I can't entirely be certain. I actually have that down as one of the scenes that I liked. Uh, again, some inappropriate violence, but it feels less horrible and more funny. Uh, they're all crammed in to this one cockpit, and they each in turn say something to annoy Gotten, and he just headbutts them <laughs> from his seat in the cockpit. He just like swings his head around and knocks into people who annoy him. It's funny. There's good sound design in that scene too. There's a very satisfying clonk when he hits somebody with his helmet. Well, and the and the sounds that his subordinates make. But yeah, when so many other moments in the episode don't feel clearly 
horrifying enough or funny enough. Like it's when it's not clear emotionally <laughs> what the episode is trying to do, it makes it hard to trust those moments when we see something and we're like, oh, this is funny. Yeah. It's that uneven roller coaster tone. Like, because that scene with Gotten and all of his wingmen comes immediately after Kiara sexually assaults Judo in the bathroom. And so much about the overall tone of an episode or show affects whether we see a scene and interpret it as, oh, that's horrible or, oh, that's funny. Because when you think about the actual actions, a lot of scenes could be both. (laughs) Goten hitting all of his subordinates does not sound funny. In the context of the scene and the way it's constructed, it is kind of, although I'm not sure whether it ought to be. I'm not sure whether I should feel bad (laughs) that I found it funny. I think they wanted you to find it funny, but that doesn't answer the question of whether or not you should feel bad. (laughs) It does not answer the question at all. Yeah, we've talked before. Anything that comes up so consistently within a narrative is a, a pattern and is likely to have been done deliberately. Like if you have three chokings in a single episode, that feels deliberate. And so what are they trying to say? What are they doing here? I can think of a sort of stretch interpretation that I don't Mm -hmm. feel that they earned at all. And what would that be? Well, that would be that they're trying to make some comment about the suffocating nature of the situation all these characters find themselves in. Yeah. These like structures and society and like, oh, it's all suffocating for everyone. That does feel like the natural read, but... Uh, But they absolutely did not earn it. No, there's nothing else in the episode that would back that up. Well, and the... The events themselves don't tie clearly enough or obviously enough to those sentiments of feeling trapped in in organizations or social structures. We even have the opposite. We have one of these chokings leading to Judo being like, yeah, I'm going to band together with my friends. It doesn't lead to alienation. The only one of them that kind of fits into that would be gotten trapped in this cockpit with all of his idiot subordinates gotten clearly feeling uh trapped and overwhelmed as a commander and so gotten suffocating unable to breathe that's true and he even says gosh being a a commander is harder than i expected this is really difficult for me this has been really stressful for me but other characters who feel trapped, feel suffocated, like Bright, aren't involved in any of these chokings. Speaking of Gotten and that scene, as is my habit on here, I would like to point out that Gotten's desire to rescue Kiara from the Argama and his concern about blowing it up and hurting her accidentally mirrors, parallels, if you will, Judo's feelings about Lena, although the show doesn't really do anything with that, so it's not as compelling as it was in First Gundam or in Zeta. More importantly, I think this scene with Gotten, as well as some other stuff that happens in the episode, gets towards proposing a thesis that uh, commanders, higher-ups, are sort of inherently ridiculous. And I'm using that in its literal sense here, not just funny, but deserving of ridicule, Um, not because of their own personalities, but because of something that command does to them. So, for example, here we have Gotten, who a few episodes ago was the uh, the conniving lieutenant, the super competent, feet-on-the-ground guy who was a perfect foil for Mashima and Kiara. But now that he's in command, Gotten is uh, more like them than he would like to admit. And he's become a bit of a buffoon himself. Similarly, on the AU side of things, you've got Bright and his new supernumerary overseer in Mecha Mucha, who joins the long tradition of Gundam characters like Lieutenant Reed and Wong Lee, whose job is to show up on the Argama and be just enough more obnoxious and smothering than Bright to make Bright look good by comparison. But he's so much worse than Bright. It's not (laughs) a matter of degrees. He is incompetent, he's selfish, he's cowardly. Yes. He comes bearing impossible orders. He talks a big game, but is immediately terrified when there's a fight. He's obsessed with this new gun. But if he weren't there, Bright would be the most obnoxious person on the bridge. I don't know. Ruse, I told you so, (laughs) certainly puts her in the running. Yeah, okay. But like, on average. I wondered if 
Medchat is not actually a commentary maybe on toy designers or sponsors. Like, no, we have to show the gun. When are we going to show? Are we going to show the gun now? <laughs> we need to show the gun now. Well, show even, off the gun. Even more than the gun, he has that sales pitch for the Mega Rider right before the choking scene. Oh, no, this is not mere shackles. <laughs> Nina, do you know what the shackles are? No. <laughs> well, they're like a gator. Do you know what a gator is? No. I mean, it's basically a dodai. Ha ha ha. Okay, now. I can keep going. I, I remember what the dodai is. Ah, uh, I should have gone with bass jabber first and finished with dodai. I had a whole bit worked up. For you listeners at home who don't remember what any of those are, these are basically little like sledge-shaped shuttles that mobile suits can ride on around uh, either in space or in the atmosphere for additional propulsion and speed, especially if it's a less maneuverable mobile suit. They're all basically the same thing, but they have different names depending on where they operate and who operates them. It's a little annoying here because I'm pretty sure the name Shackles is never actually said in Zeta. So Bright is like, oh, is it like this other thing that you would only know about if you read the supplementary magazines? But let's get back to how annoying Medche is. <laughs> uh, I feel like the exemplary scene for how ridiculous he is is the scene where he repeats Bright's orders that Bright has already given verbatim into a headset that's not plugged in. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I'm sure he is exactly what you think he is. I'm sure he is uh, inspired by the creative team's experience with sponsor representatives. Here, I brought word that you need to do an impossible thing. I'm sure it will be easy. Which uh, is reminiscent of a lot of orders Bright has received throughout his career. That one took me back to first Gundam. <laughs> now, after all of those big complaints about big, important things, you might not think that we would be petty enough to list off our minor gripes. But ooh, did we have minor gripes with this episode, and you'd better believe we're going to list them off. Watching this episode for the second time, I was looking very closely at the scene where Millie almost burns Judo with her uh, welding gun or torch or whatever it is. Uh, he gets bounced around a bit and then winds up getting paint on his hands. And I looked at it and I thought about it and I was like, wow, is the only purpose of this scene so that Judo has a reason to be washing his hands in the bathroom so Kiara can corner him? because it serves no other yeah. identifiable purpose. You might be right about that. It gets a callback later in the episode when Kiara is mid-escape and Judo like puts his hand on the shield of the Zeta and gets paint on it again. And this irritates me so much. First of all, because it absolutely kills the momentum of a very exciting scene. Second, and now I'm gonna get really persnickety, there's no consistency within this scene. Now, consistency scene to scene is like important, but messing it up is understandable. Uh, but here, they make a big show of Judo putting his hand on the shield, getting paint on it. There's a handprint on the shield. Oh no, funny line, everyone laugh. But he's not the only one in this scene and the scene doesn't end there. Elle is there and Eno is there. Eno drifts into shot and then somehow miraculously manages to stop his momentum midair, a thing you can't do, <laughs> which obviates the bit where Eno would have to also touch the shield because it's the only thing there for them to stop themselves with. And then Elle kicks off the shield and we see the shield after she kicks off and we see her feet after she kicks off and there's no paint on her feet and no boot print on the shield. So it seems like the Zeta's paint is only wet when Judo is putting his hand on it. I feel so petty, it feels good. <laughs> it's easier on the bad episodes than it, like on a good one, you hate to, to mar the good bits with petty criticisms, but when it's already bad, might as well just tear it up. Here's a couple more. Why has no one suggested a hostage swap? They want Lena, they have Kiara, seems like a pretty fair trade. Kiara is proving to be a very difficult prisoner. Uh, but I've told you this several times already, this whole Lena being captured situation has gone on way too long. It's been super drawn out uh, to no apparent purpose. Yeah, there's been no meaningful development. 
Also, now the radio doesn't work? Camille and Jared were trash-talking each other on open radio frequencies for 50 episodes, but Kiara can't broadcast one message to Gotten like, Hey, it's me, I'm here. Also, this is the second episode in a row where Gotten starts the episode determined not to damage the Argama, and then at the end of the episode says, Eh, it'll be fine. We like to end on a high note, and so we will finish by discussing the handful of things that we actually liked. For all that the judo strangling Millie scene is horrifying, and the scene afterwards uh, of him getting paint on himself is pointless, uh, there are a few things about the way the scene is composed that I really liked, like how they have the engineer upside down and like hanging on to the uh, cockpit door. I often think of these kinds of scenes as scenes where the animators and designers remember (laughs) that there's low gravity and so get creative with how they array people within the scene. They're so much better about that in Double Zeta in general. Maybe they finally just like wrote it on the wall. They're in zero G. Also in this scene, I thought it was a fantastic bit of characterization to have uh, Judo's sort of polaxed reaction to being called Judo-san. Like someone is actually addressing him respectfully, possibly for the first time in his (laughs) life. And that's part of him getting older. That's part of him being in a position of responsibility. That's part of him being part of an organization and not just his little group of friends. Uh, And he is completely thrown off by it. He has no... uh, no idea how to react to that. He doesn't seem bothered by it, but he he is stunned. And that felt very true. Like, for a punk kid like Judo, he's like, <laughs> Mr. What? <laughs> yeah, there are maybe some interesting things going on with Judo's identity in that scene that just get totally overshadowed by the strangulation part. But there is Millie calling him Judo-san, and there is uh, Mecha repeatedly referring to him simply as, hey, new type. Hey, kid. Yeah. The insistence that he's a new type feels very funny when you contrast it to the scene with the dark cubile and whoever that new type girl is in the dark cubile with her flashing eyes and her ability to control the bits. And all of the pilots she's fighting, Judo and L and Rue, have at some point or other probably been uh, the subjects of speculation about, oh, they must be new types. Oh, maybe they're new types because they're all young and they're all good pilots-ish. Mostly? Yeah, they're good pilots. They're good pilots. They're still alive. They're fair go. They are good pilots. They're good pilots, Nina. But they are so completely outclassed by whoever that is. Yeah, we haven't talked about that scene at the end when the dark Kublai appears at all. Because it feels like it's from a different episode. Like, the tone changes completely, the art style changes a little bit, uh, and it's good, unlike most of the rest of this episode. It's really good. How long was she hiding there? That is a good question. Yeah, I. so the first thing I wrote about this scene was that it kind of bothered me that she's just, like, hiding in this dummy asteroid and appears out of nowhere with no explanation. But you know what? Things don't always need to be explained. And what sold me on this is... Everybody reacts with shock and horror that, like, makes the whole scene from her surprise appearance convey shock and horror and confusion through the characters to the audience. I think it works. Uh, I'm not going to complain about that unexplained appearance. And they make the bits attack feel suitably overwhelming. Yeah. In a way that it really didn't the couple of times it happened in uh, Zeta. Here, it's just like, How do you deal with this? Right. All of them have this strong sense of being surrounded by fire. It was really good. And I think they are suitably horrified by the the beam cannon firing as well. Yes. They've commented on this a few times in Double Zeta to the point where I I do think it's a theme. I mean, it's been a theme through all of Gundam, but there seems to be a, a particular focus on... Uh, the arms race aspect of things in Double Zeta mm-hmm. uh, and not just the sort of continuously more and more destructive and deadly weaponry, but the horror of that and uh, a very explicit understanding on the part of these young pilots 
that the weapons they are wielding are horrible. And it's not just Judo's reaction. For all that it was Judo early on imagining, basically just imagining explosions and Lena caught in them, at the end, he and L and Rue are all stunned by the destructive power of the latest upgrade to the Argama. Yeah, the kids are stunned and horrified. But remember, Mecha, the loathsome adult, is just like so happy about this incredibly powerful weapon. Speaking of adults... Elle makes a comment that rather shocks Judo early on in this episode where she says, well, Bright's been living like a bachelor for a long time. And when Judo's like, hey, don't you think that's kind of severe or whatever? She's like, that's just the way adults are. That's mm -hmm. just adult stuff. This is a pretty good scene, although it does make Judo out to be kind of old fashioned. Or at least a bit naive. <laughs> in a way that has not generally been his vibe in the show so far. No, the judo who I have in my head, based on previous episodes, would have sort of joked along with Elle about this rather than being shocked by it. Okay, hang on. We were talking about good things. Okay. Good oh, okay, things. Okay, okay, okay. Final good thing, possibly my favorite thing from the episode, is all the engineers rigging up guns inside the bay door to make it look like there are more mobile suits firing out from inside the Argama. Well, and they, they've got the mobile suit guns rigged up, but they can't actually fire them. So they're like standing on the barrels and firing small, like personal rifles. It's a great touch. A ruse de guerre. <laughs> a most excellent ruse. A most excellent ruse. I thought she was only pretty good in this episode. And now, Nina's piece on maglev trains. This week's episode did not inspire us with possible research topics, and so I am actually backtracking to a topic I wanted to cover in a previous episode, maglev trains or magnetic levitation trains. Did you notice? In the second Moon Moon episode, they used the colony's linear subway and the subway tunnels to get around, and the subway itself, it appears to levitate. Rather than being on rails, it is a maglev train. If memory serves, every other linear subway we've seen so far has been on rails, with many of them traveling along the outside of the colony to boot. This is the only maglev train system we've seen, and it's in one of the oldest colony structures we've seen. So why include it here? And how do maglev trains work anyway? I'll start by explaining as best I can how these trains function, before digging into the history of the technology and of actual maglev train lines in Japan. In simplest terms, maglev trains use two sets of magnets, one on the track and one on the bottom of the train, that repel each other and propel the train along, and also stabilize it. They can be mono or dual rail, and some actually have wheels that they use at slower speeds and only levitate at higher speeds. Conversely, there are more traditional railway systems that have trains with wheels and use electromagnetism for propulsion. But since these trains don't ever levitate, they are not maglev trains. There are two main types of maglev train, EMS, or electromagnetic suspension, and EDS, or electrodynamic suspension. Uh, for both of these types, the Wikipedia has some good diagrams that are helpful for understanding the physical and spatial arrangement of these systems. In EMS systems, quote, electronically controlled electromagnets in the train attract it to a magnetically conductive, usually steel, track. These systems work at all speeds, but also require very sophisticated systems called active feedback systems to maintain the train's stability and optimal distance from the track. I'm vastly oversimplifying, but basically, because of the way the magnets interact, these systems are what's called dynamically unstable, constantly shifting, and any misalignment or divergence from the optimal position is likely to grow and grow unless the feedback system addresses it. And in case you wondered just how much levitation is involved, the distance between the track and the train is usually only 15 millimeters, or about 0.59 inches. 
EMS trains have been clocked at 500 kilometers per hour or 310 miles per hour. Should I say wow? Because wow. Yes, they are very fast. <laughs> In EDS systems, quote, superconducting electromagnets or strong permanent magnets create a magnetic field. Which induces currents in nearby metallic conductors when there is relative movement, which pushes and pulls the train toward the designed levitation position on the guideway. Which is to say, both the train and the guideway exert magnetic fields. In some early systems, only repulsive forces were used, but later versions use both repulsive and attractive forces. The main advantage of EDS systems is that they are quote dynamically stable. Deviations in the train position create strong forces that return it to its original position. It is self-correcting and does not require the sophisticated feedback systems that EMS trains do. However, EDS systems don't generate strong enough magnetic fields at low speed to support levitation, so they need wheels or some kind of landing gear for when the train is operating at lower speeds. Additionally, the strong magnetic fields on the train mean that it requires extensive magnetic shielding in order to be safe for passengers with pacemakers and for magnetic storage media. Can you imagine accidentally erasing <laughs> your laptop when you get on the commuter rail? That would be a nightmare. That would be real bad.、Uh, EDS trains have been clocked at a top speed of 603 kilometers per hour, or 375 miles per hour. That's even more wow. Yup. Maglev trains have a number of advantages over conventional rail: lower maintenance costs and quieter operation due to the lack of friction with the track and the lack of moving parts. The lack of contact with the track also means they are less affected by snow and ice than conventional rail. They can accelerate and decelerate much faster than typical trains, fast enough that the actual constraint is what is safe and comfortable for passengers, rather than what the train can handle. Maglev trains can also handle higher grades, which is to say steeper ascents, which could reduce the need for tunneling. The lack of a combustion engine means less pollution, and at high speeds they are more energy efficient. And the 30-kilometer maglev system in Shanghai, built by Transrapid, which is a joint venture between two German companies, Siemens and ThyssenKrupp, is the fastest commercially operating train in the world. However, as with all land transport, overcoming drag, which is to say air resistance, is actually a much bigger issue than friction with the ground. And although the fact that they have fewer moving parts makes maglev trains cheaper to produce and maintain. Construction of tracks has been more expensive than standard railway lines. At lower speeds, conventional rail is often more energy efficient as well. But this is hardly the whole story. How was this technology developed, and what was its status when Double Zeta was being written? As we ask whenever an interesting bit of technology comes up in Gundam, why was this on the writers' minds? Maglev trains were conceptualized in the early 1900s by an American inventor, Robert Goddard, and a French-American engineer, Emile Bachelet. And patents for electromagnetic transportation were granted as early as 1907. In the United States, in 1908, the mayor of Cleveland, Tom L. Johnson, received a patent for a wheelless high-speed railway levitated by an induced magnetic field. He had a test track in his basement, and the train was jokingly called "Greased Lightning." In Germany, engineer Hermann Kemper received patents for magnetic levitation trains in 1937 and 1941. In the 1940s, British electrical engineer Eric Lathwaite created the first full-size working model of linear motor induction. Linear motors being a technology on which maglev trains depend, they generate linear force along their length rather than torque, which is the force generated by most engines. I can't explain any more than that, but there are. I will link to the Wikipedia page for linear motors if you want to try to understand that better. Although many additional patents were granted in the following decades, both for whole transport systems and for technological refinements to pre-existing ideas, it seems that work on a commercially viable maglev train didn't begin until the late 1960s, likely postponed by other less experimental post-war rebuilding projects. In Japan, the Central Japan Railway Company began development of its SC Maglev train in 
Tests at their Miyazaki Prefecture test track ran through the 70s and 80s, and the train gave test rides at the Okazaki Exhibition in 1987. In 1974, Japan Airlines began development of its own maglev train, the HSST, and in 1985, the HSST-3, also known as the Linimo, was a popular attraction at the Tsukuba World Expo. Remember the Tsukuba World Expo? We talked about it briefly in episode 3.1, when we covered significant world events of the 1980s. That same train, the HSST-3, was exhibited again at Expo 86 in Vancouver, Canada. Simultaneously, there were maglev projects in other parts of the world. 1979 saw tracks open in Germany and in Russia, and in 1984, the world's first commercial maglev system opened in Birmingham in the UK, connecting Birmingham's airport to the nearby railway station. I'm confining this piece to things that happened before or during Double Zeta, but some additional tracks have opened and closed since then, and there are a few lines, test tracks, and commercial currently operational, as well as quite a few in development. So why don't we have more maglev lines? The biggest hurdle is simply cost. Railway projects that use conventional trains can rely on existing infrastructure. Maglev trains require entirely new tracks, with all the land acquisition and construction that that implies. I feel like a hover technology is a staple of science fiction. We saw hoverbike-type vehicles in First Gundam, but they used uh, air. They used fans, basically. Yeah, I'm thinking of all of the different ways that things have hovered in Gundam. <laughs> Didn't the um, the white base had cars that had wheels, but the wheels could fold up, and then they became hover vehicles? Didn't they? I believe so. And then there was the white base itself, which sort of uh, float flew when it was on Earth. Definitely hovering because it is not an aerodynamic vehicle. And yeah, the the WAPAs with their big uh, covered fans. Yeah. I don't necessarily think there's any rhyme or reason to why this old colony has a maglev and a bunch of the newer ones we've seen don't. I suspect they just wanted to do something that looked cool. And as we pointed out, the Tsukuba Expo was quite popular. It was showcasing a lot of very fancy new technologies. It seems likely that some people involved in Gundam visited the expo and would have gotten to see the maglev train and read about it. But it's so interesting that they decided this maglev train was both future technology, but the sort of future technology that would already be defunct by the time the show starts. Well, the Shinkansen, Japan's bullet train, system first opened in 1964 <laughs> so yeah by the time they were developing the high-speed maglev trains there was already a network of high-speed trains on conventional rail in japan mm -hmm. so yeah it would have seemed very high tech but it would have taken a lot for it to supplant the system that was already in place they are currently building a new maglev track from I want to say Tokyo to Nagoya, that is supposed to open within the next decade. But, uh, you know, these are massively expensive projects. The fact that it cannot rely on existing rail networks is a big issue. And uh, although they are incredibly fast, some experimental wheeled trains have made those same speeds. I wonder if it's a question of really emphasizing the difference between the super futuristic technology environment that Moon Moon exists within versus their back-to-nature lifestyle that they've chosen to adopt, even inside this light bulb-shaped globe floating in the void of space. Like, the foundation of their world is maglev trains and mobile suits. Although even their maglev train, it can't actually be a high-speed train because the train car is open. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's a, it is a small colony. They would not need to go very fast. No. And one of the popular maglev lines currently operation in Japan is one of the Linimo uh, lines. And it's uh, quite a short one. And it never goes particularly fast. It's a little commuter rail within a, within a city area. I mean... Whomst among us does not want to levitate, <laughs> even if it's not particularly efficient or fast. 
It's just so cool. Next time on episode 3.16, Purdue's Brother, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 18 and If Rich People Could Control the Weather, season 88 of The Crown, Sanrio Product Placement, Pudu 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 Pudu. Welcome to the new job, same as the old job. Bad example. My apples! bikinis in space. And we've combined the stability of a cyber new type with the rationality of a 10-year-old to create the ultimate weapon. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobosuit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting... If Minerva is Dozel's daughter, then she should be a giant who towers over all her Xeon subjects, even as a six-year-old. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. The wrong gun opinion this week comes from Hobbs5226 in the MSB Discord. Thanks, Hobbs. And thank you for listening. not very responsible. No. No, they're not. I think I have to do that again. There's somebody talking outside. Yeah. Loud trucks, boo! That same train, the HSS T3, was exhibited again at Expo 86 in Vancouver, Canada. Which I think my parents went to. Huh. I am doing most of the talking after all. Indeed. I made the mistake of looking into a piece of technology mm. that I had seen advertised and that looked really cool. Mm. And then it turns out is really cool, mm. but is consummately expensive. Mm. <laughs> and manufacture some kind of magnetically accelerated space capsule that we could use to escape this ship. Oh. But where am I going to find startup capital on short notice like this? Perhaps it would be more cost-effective to propel the capsule by detonating a series of micro-scale nuclear devices? I'd need to collect the energy somehow, perhaps with a vast pusher plate shielded by an electromagnetic field. Oh, if only I had access to a robust private sector of unregulated technology firms. No, no, Mr. Judo is my father, who I've never seen. Uh, let's call it there. <laughs> I feel like this is a little bit like um, whenever I start a new hobby, and I'm like, <laughs> I need to buy the following resources so that I can do this hobby at the highest level. <laughs> And then it's like, but I actually haven't even started doing it yet. And maybe I'm going to find out that I don't like it. True. But I do know that I like being able to, like, give myself a blowout. True. 
Although you don't know that you're actually going to get to that length of hair on, on this attempt. That's true. You never know when you might get frustrated and give up. And by give up, he means chop all my hair off. I've only buzzed it off once. Oh, he was so cute, though. <laughs> I'm cute with long hair, too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Okay, that's coming out. <laughs> no, it's so good. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs>